So um, <clears throat> we've been through Jesus' feeding of the 4,000, and forgive me for this, have this whole sort of seasonal cough thing that goes on. So get myself talking, and then I have a coughing fit and pass out. Then you have to revive me and all of that. So, so it's weird, awkward church service when I do that. So more than normal, even. So um, so back in chapter 8, Jesus had fed the 4,000, um, and uh, then uh, the Pharisees come and said they were seeking a sign, and you know they're they're beginning that process of trying to stumble him and trick him and get him caught up in these things. And Jesus gave that warning about being aware aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Um, I I didn't dwell on that a lot. There are you know people that insist you shouldn't get in pol- involved in politics because Herod was. You know, a politician, and um, you know he he was, uh, you know. Uh, anyway, there are Christians that have the perception that you shouldn't be involved in politics, and um, you know the leaven. I made the point that the 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 leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees was the same thing. It's hypocrisy. It's saying one thing and believing and doing another thing, and, and that hypocrisy we should be aware of. He healed the blind man and. Bethsaida, uh, and we talked about the particulars of uh, some people experiencing progressive healing. Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ. We talked about the particulars of the keys of the kingdom and the rock on which the church would be built, meaning Jesus. And then Jesus predicted uh, his death and resurrection, and he concluded there by talking about uh, our needing to take up our cross and die daily. Uh, and uh, and uh, thereby you know be living and walking with the Lord. So when you come to chapter nine, we begin uh, this introduction of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ in verse one. Uh, he said to them, "Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here will, who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God uh, present with power." Now. There are some misappropriations that want to talk about, you know, Jesus' kingdom having come and, you know, that the millennium has started. There's a lot of different things that sort of squirrel their way in here. What Jesus is talking about is the fact that he's going to be transfigured before Peter, James, and John. They're going to see for the first time, in the most direct way, that Jesus is God. They're going to see his power. Uh, They're going to to actually step effectively into the kingdom and and see, you know, they're going to be there with Moses and Elijah uh, briefly and see Jesus in his glorified state. So, you know, we shouldn't, uh, you know, turn this into, you know, where does the millennium begin? Where does the millennium end? You know, is is this, you know, somehow something that indicates or means something else? So, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. I Every time I hit this, I want to make the point, because I've seen people many, many times be driven out of the church by our enemy by Satan himself 
over friendships, right? They desire to be close friends with the pastor or close friends with a certain group of people, and they can't get in, and so they'll say things like, oh, that church is very clicky, and they'll leave, okay? <clears throat> I think every human being is clicky, every human being, even the ones that detest clicks. They collect together with other people who hate clicks, and they all click together. Okay, <clears throat> there were countless thousands, massive throngs, tens of thousands at times that followed Jesus, right? There were 120 people that were the elite because they followed Jesus from the beginning of his ministry until he ascended. We hear in Acts as Peter is suggesting that they should fulfill Psalm 109, verse 8, and they choose Matthias to replace Judas. And he says there's 120 followers here who have been with us since the beginning of the ministry until Jesus ascended. There are the 70, you know, parenthesis 2, uh, 72, that were sent out by Jesus that were more elite than the 120, right? There are the 12, which are more elite than the 70, right? There are the three. Peter, James, and John, who Jesus literally says to the rest of the group, stay here. I'm taking these three, and we're going away. Okay. And then there's arguably the one, right? Peter. No, it was John, right? The apostle whom Jesus loved. So, you know, the point is, this sort of exists everywhere. And... There's a weakness within us that is a man-pleaser. We want recognition. We want to be accepted, right? And here's the, here's the secret. You are accepted by the only one that matters, God himself. That's it. You're going to have friendships. You're going to have friendships with special people. You're going to be closer with some than you are with others. You're going to be rejected by special people. I, uh, I'll never forget. <clears throat> a number of years ago, I was returning from a pastor's conference with my pastor. We're in this big 15-passenger van. It's a whole bunch of guys from the ministry. We've driven to Maryland. We're driving back better part of a week together. And, you know, that mentality is always sort of human nature. And we're riding along. I think we're listening to worship music. and All at once, Ken turns the radio down and says, You know, brothers, I just got to say, it was a real pleasure coming down here with some of you. And he turned the radio back up. Just went back to driving. <clears throat> I lost my mind laughing, right? Because I, I understand Ken's humor. And I just, I under, I took it as humor. I just lost my mind. But, you know, I'm looking around the van and you can just tell everybody is, 
you know, doing the Last Supper thing, like, is it I? You know, like, uh, like, like this whole mentality. And then he, he you know, turns and he turns it down again a while later and just starts laughing about the whole thing, the the human nature within all of us that longs for recognition and attention and, and you know, the place of being something special. And when Jesus tells them, tells us. And you want to be the greatest in the kingdom? He doesn't condemn, you know, that ambition. He says, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you're going to have to become everyone's servant. You're going to have to sink to the low position. That's where you're going to find. And, and we do a weird thing, do we not? Where we're like, I will sink to the lowest position, you know? I will sneak into the church and I will work without anyone knowing and I will, do, and I will be the greatest secret church elf you know what i'm saying and 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 then we're offended because people don't take notice you know like oh like somebody was doing extra special cleaning didn't even notice you know what i'm saying and and you know we we get all bent out of shape our enemy you have to understand the enemy behind that who's finding in me that small thing that thing in you <clears throat> where He's just turning the screws, finding my weakness, pushing pushing the one button nobody else can identify. You know, here he takes Peter, James, and John. You can't be one of the people that's left back going, you know, of course he's taking the special kids. You know, I just, why can't I ever be, you know, accepted just... You know, that's, that's probably right. I'm not much of a Christian. Just right, you know, that I would be left behind. You adopt a whole Eeyore, you know, Christian mentality in the thing. Christ accepts us. Christ accepts us. And and if, if I can't be fulfilled by that, then I am dialed into the wrong thing. I, I need to change the frequency. I need to get to where I'm hearing his message to me and adopt that and absorb that and live off from that and thrive from that. I have seen in my own life how the Lord will purposely excommunicate me from the special circles in order to hear his voice saying to me that he loves me and he accepts me. And look, I'll hear that, right? I'll open up the pages of the Bible and the very words I need to hear are right there. And I'll still walk away and feel sorry for myself. right? Regardless of the fact that he's effectively communicating with me, will I take the message? Will I heed the message? Will I function according to the message? Right? There's a, there's a great application in this, in that Peter has to tell us in his epistle, look, there's something greater than being present at the transfiguration, and that's the word of God, right? We have the more excellent word of prophecy, is how he words it in the King James Version. There's something superior to the supernatural experience, the, 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 you know, the grandiose thing that we've, you know, encountered, being in the presence of God, seeing him 
and understanding that he's communicating with us individually, loves us all, loves the 70, loves the 120, loves the, the masses and the throng and all the people as much as he does John or Peter, James, and John or the 12, right? That, that, that concept that if he was dying for Will Cass alone that day on the cross, he would have done it. That's remarkable that, that he truly does have that sense of love. So he takes... The three led them up on the high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Metamorphosized is the idea, the, the, the terminology. And it is, it's much more than just like the light shone down. Okay, this, this terminology that's here is the same concept as what happens to the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. This, this isn't just, you know, Jesus got plugged in and glowed and wow, neato. There was a, a, a change of person before their eyes. They saw the glory of God in this moment, you know, in, in a way that, only occurs here, transfigured, metamorphosized before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them, and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said, to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Now, I want you to fully absorb the humility of Peter here, right? Because he essentially says... Peter said this because he was a doofus, right? That's that's basically what we got. And you got to understand that Peter is the co-author of this book, right? John, Mark, and Peter are writing this together. And so when this confession comes, you know, it isn't just like John's scrolling ahead and once it's been written, Peter's like, oh, I wish you hadn't included that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> It is that Peter is, right, because Peter, James, and John were present. John Mark was not present. Peter has to make this confession and explanation to him in order for it to be recorded here. The humility contained in the book of Mark from Peter is really quite remarkable. The failures that are exposed. So here in this moment, it's the same thing that, you know, I mentioned going to pastor's conferences. There are a few conferences that I get to go to. I don't get to go to every one every year. Um, we were finally able to go to Maryland this spring in May, and we haven't been down in a couple of years, and that was just really wonderful. And you get to a point with the worship music, and, you know, you've been days only around people that are, in ministry and you know they're like high caliber christians who are just 
really ministering to you and you're appreciating everything's done and and then it comes to you you know oh, i've only got like a day and a half left and i've got to go back to the grind you know the idea of you know it would be good to just live here <laughs> like why do i need to go home why can't we just stay maybe you've been at the men's conference or the women's conference and you know you're just thinking like it would be nice to to have this all the time my first stark experience with that was a pastor's conference as a youth pastor um, with ministry guys a whole day before getting ready we leave big drive down the entire conference worship like I've never experienced before teaching like I've never experienced before you know pile back in the van drive you know a number of hours north get out on the turnpike and, uh, you know, step into a cloud of cigarette smoke and somebody just cursing their head off. You know, it's like the devil just walked up and slapped you in the face for the first time in four or five days. And the letdown. And that's what Peter is saying. Out of fear, out of anxiety, you know, the glory of the moment of we should just stay right here. You know, the tabernacle that he's referring to is the idea of worship center. Like we could have your Bible studies and Elijah's Bible studies and Moses' Bible studies, and this would just be great. Let's just live here. Sometimes, you know, our earthly perception of things will leave us with incorrect presumptions about what we should or should not do, right? Because what they're experiencing here needs to be taken back down the mountain to the people who need to be fed by this. They're going to come right into a circumstance that requires Jesus' presence, requires his efforts, his capabilities, his ministry. Um, it is, in fact, a selfish thing to think along these lines. We've got, we've got to get in the trenches. We've got to minister. I <clears throat> All the time... I really hope you grab a hold of it and you sink it into your heart. <clears throat> um, uh, just trying to think of how to word it. We often want that, that concept of, boy, I'd like to be in the ministry. I'd like to, I wish I didn't have to work at this place. These people drive me nuts. I can't, you know, wish I could just, you know, serve the Lord somewhere. Well, the thing of it is, is the Lord has designed us all as ministers, and we're supposed to come together like this and absorb and be fed. We're also supposed to be absorbing daily and feeding ourselves also, that we would take that out into the world and bring that to the people and then bring them back to the presence of the Lord. We, we need to be functioning. The, you know, Frank drowns, I, I mention this all the time, uh, many of us know Jim Elliott, right, from the stories, uh, the, the missionary, the bush pilot, and they contacted the natives, and maybe you've seen uh, the movie, The End of the Spear, right? They're all headhunters. He wants to bring Christ to them. They go through this very complicated process of, of learning how to fly in circles. Uh, they practice this endlessly with a rope and a bucket, and they could keep the bucket inside a three-foot circle. 
right? Lower the, the bucket out of the plane and they could lower things down and raise the bucket back up, do this exchange thing and start to communicate with the headhunters. They're flying in circles and lowering the bucket and putting things down to them and bringing it back up and they want to bring them the gospel, right? The man who trained them in ministry, his name was Frank Drowns. And Frank took them to the mission field. The day that Jim and his fellow ministers were killed, they left without telling Frank because they were building up to the moment where they were going to land on a river beach and meet these people face to face, and it was their death. They met them, and the natives killed them. Okay, Years later, <clears throat> they actually brought the gospel to them, and the whole tribe was converted and forsook their murderous ways and very devout Christians today because of Jim Elliott and his efforts. Frank was the man who took them to the mission field. So Frank came and spoke uh, to us, and so he's been a missionary <clears throat> since his youth. We met him in his 90s, <clears throat> and when he finished speaking to us, he was getting on an airplane to go do that all over again with the Inuits in the Arctic Circle. Right, he he's he said, "I'm going to continue to be a missionary until Christ takes me home. I'm not going to stop." Um, I don't even know if Frank's still alive, but anyway, he, uh, you know, de devout in this, and he said to all of us, "You know, many of you want to go to the mission field. You have this burning desire. You're trying to go. There are always two things you have to overcome to go to the mission field. They are the culture and the language." You, you, you know, you, you have to in some way through translators, through representatives or learning the culture and the language. And he talked at length about, you know, the people who've effectively gone into the mission field, adopted all of the culture, you know, grew their hair the same way, wore the same clothes, learned the language. And he then makes the point at the end of you live in a culture where you know the culture and you know the language. You can be a missionary. The heart of the missionary is to win a people group. You can do that amongst the people group you live in. Go and minister. It'd be great to live, you know, in the Jesus, Moses, Elijah camp. <laughs> Just go, go from Bible study to Bible study. <clears throat> you know, probably Moses and Elijah just sit, obviously, in Jesus' Bible study. You know, you could hang out together and experience like that. This is fantastic. And you don't have to go meet any of the demons down in town. But it's very necessary that you do so. The experience, the, the wonderful experience of Christianity and fellowship like that, that's, that's a great, great thing for us. But there's a sick and dying world out there that needs to know Jesus Christ. And we have been created as an ambassador. Make sure... That you don't develop the mindset of, oh, it stinks out here. I'm going to isolate. I'm going to keep to myself. I hate this. I can't stand those people, this news, this thing, this world, this government. And then back to church of, oh, thank goodness, I'm back in the tabernacle. And then you go back out and you sort of cramp up and isolate again and then just come back to the tabernacle. There's, there's a world out there that needs you to open your mouth and to speak to them and share the love of Christ and the power of Christ.
and the message of Christ with them. This, this is the job that we're called to do, to represent him. You know, the, the term martyr, right? <clears throat> That's today, we've, we've translated that, that. The term we use is witness. Witness for these people, there was only one word. They didn't use that word. They used the word martyr, which was the idea of speaking until someone killed you. Sharing with the world, right? You expect to be hated. Here, Peter's got that mindset that so many of us do. I just want to stay in my bubble. I just, everything else stinks so bad. I don't want anything to do with it. We need to get out there. We need to get down off on our mountain. Get into the presence of people. A cloud came and overshadowed them. A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but Jesus, but excuse me, but only Jesus with themselves. Great encouragement in that. You know, for all the glory, for all the spectacular moment that you might you know hear, in that is always the voice that is saying, Listen to my son. And if you're thinking, like, how do I do that? How do I get to where I'm hearing Jesus? How do I get to where I know that I'm hearing from him? It's really quite simple. And I don't mean to talk down at all, right? It's it's John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You, if you've got your face in the book every day, you're hearing the voice of Jesus. He is speaking to you. You're also going to hear him in prayer. You're also going to hear him in fellowship, right? You've had that experience where you're like, God, I've got the struggle. Please speak to me. And he says to your heart, here's your answer. And you think, I don't like that answer. You know, I was really hoping for something that was way more comfortable than that. And you open the book and same answer. And you're like, okay, I get it. But, you know, it's really hard and I don't know how I'm going to overcome it. And so... You know, it's up to you. And then you're at church and somebody says, oh, I was just reading this morning in my devotions and they deliver same answer. Right. Because the Holy Spirit permeates all of these things. Wherever you are, the Holy Spirit is going to be there. If you're a child of God, he's going to communicate to you over and over and over again until you yield to the message. If not, then the message is just going to keep coming. It's, it's him trying to reach us. So listen to Jesus. You know, you don't, you don't need Moses and Elijah physically there. Certainly need their writings, but, you know, you don't need to have a special prophet. You listen to Jesus. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Um, I, I like the fact that over and over again, the scripture records that they are missing the point. Right? Jesus tells them blatantly, you know, going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to the Romans, going to be killed, going to be in the grave. And they're like, yeah, we didn't bring enough bread, did we? You know, just, they missed the point. All the time. 
I'm very encouraged by that because I miss the point all the time. You know, and he's patient enough to keep delivering the message and drawing me along and helping us, me, you, to understand. Here, wants to keep himself. Again, he got a couple different uh, applications, a different, couple different layers there. The first of which is he he's slowing down the process of the people declaring him to be the Messiah. Because he needs that to happen on April 632 A.D. And, and there's not really a strain to it. He knows it's going to happen on April 632 A.D. He's keeping it that way because it fulfills what uh, Gabriel brought to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, which we've talked about. So, you know, he, he wants that to sort of be kept under wraps. The second thing is what we've already talked about and what Peter will talk about later is the idea of there's something that's more significant in the life of a believer, which is, it's actually a two-part. It's the Word of God and it's obedience to the Word of God, right? Uh, Samuel the prophet begins that concept, you know, it's, it's in the scripture, but he begins it very blatantly with Saul. When Saul is told, I need you to go... The Lord says, I need you to go kill all of the Amalekites. Wipe them out utterly. Men, women, children, you know, animals destroy the entire kingdom of the Amalekites. He doesn't do that. He thinks he knows better than God. He's second-guessing God. I mean, how could God just slaughter people like this? You know, what is God? Some genocidal murderer? This is sick. You know, he's got a mindset. It's, it's really cheaper than that with Saul. Saul is a weakling and he kills what is a threat to him and that's it. He's thinking, are you kidding? I get to cash in on this. Look at all these attractive women. Why would I want to kill all of them? Look at all these cattle. Why would I want to kill all of them? Look at all these things that benefit me. Why would I want to kill all of them? Right? Samuel has become physically blind he shows up to confront Saul. Saul basically declares, I have done all the will of the Lord. And Samuel basically says, really, then why do I still hear cattle and goats? They should all be dead. And, uh, you know, the summary of the thing is when Samuel says to obey is better than sacrifice. And then he goes on to say that rebellion is equal to witchcraft and stubbornness is equal to idolatry. We, we especially as Americans, think of stubbornness and rebellion as, you know, like beneficial characteristics. <laughs> it's really, really treacherous. To have a stubborn and rebellious heart it can lead to very bad things. You need to know at times when to resist the world, you know, to be steadfast. But this issue of rebellion, that's not something that the Lord calls us to do. You know, the issues we're dealing with right now, similar to the book of Acts, where the government uh, is saying disobey God. And Peter and John particularly have to say, 
you decide whether it's right for us to obey men rather than God. But they don't have a rebellious spirit. They have a steadfast spirit of worship that says, I'm not going to be moved off from worshiping God as, as he has prescribed. Here, the more important thing for them is that they would hear and obey God's word, right? We sometimes think, and this passage is correcting us, and a lot of the Old Testament is correcting us, we sometimes think, if I could just see the supernatural in the raw, just part the Red Sea, you know, then I'd believe that entire nation saw the Red Sea part and then rebelled against God, right? And we're not just talking, right? I'm not even categorizing it under the complaint department, right? When they were, you know, dying of thirst or dying of starvation, I'm talking about as soon as they can, they build a golden calf, right? And, and, and you know, here we are, adults in mixed company, and they have a massive orgy. God, you know, when Moses comes down off the mountain, you know, they ate and drank and rose up to play. It meant sexually. These people are just gross sinners like the rest of us. As soon as the opportunity comes, total rebellion to God. Seeing the supernatural does not convert your heart. Right? That actually comes more than anything through self-will. Grabbing a hold of your own heart and mind. And it's so interesting to me because, right, especially struggling with addiction and helping others struggle with addiction, the one thing that a lot of people miss is the fact that one of the fruit, or there's one fruit, but one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. A lot lot of people are like, "I, I just wish God would change me. Like, what do you mean by that, you know? You wish that he'd blonk you over the head, you know what I'm saying, so you can't think for yourself anymore? He he doesn't want robots, right? He wants you with all of your intelligence and all of your capabilities and all of your attributes submitting yourself to him. Looking right at it like Jesus did at the Garden of Gethsemane and saying with a gajillion percent of myself, I want to do this over here, but I know that's against God's will. So I will forcibly apply myself to obeying him this way over here. This this is what Peter is saying to us in his epistle when he says, you know, we have the more sure word and you can end it right there. He says of prophecy, he's talking about the word of God. Do you believe it? Do you trust it? Do you obey it? That's what it comes down to. And I'll take us one more time, forgive the repetition, back to the Garden of Eden. That's how Lucifer tempts Eve. Did God really say? You know, that's the whole of how he attacks the Bible. Did God really say that? You know, the Bible says this or that, but I don't believe that. I don't think God would be like that. I don't think God should be like that. Who cares what we think? We didn't write the Bible. We didn't create all of this, right? 
can the pot say to the potter, hey, why have you made me like this? No. He is the one who is sovereign. We need to be in submission to him and to his word. This is what we're being told here. Keep this to yourself. You wait. They don't understand. Rising from the dead, he's going to begin to teach them even more pointedly. In verse 11, they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? We just saw Elijah. So how does this all fit together? What are we talking about here? How, how do I figure this out is what they're saying. Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how it is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has also come and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. So the scripture had said that before the Messiah was to come, that Elijah would come first. So they're looking for Elijah. And even today, you'll hear people talk about the coming of Elijah. Well, Jesus gives them a more accurate answer in the other Gospels when he says John the Baptist was Elijah. And I like how he words it. He says, if you can accept it, John the Baptist was Elijah. Now, there's always a uh, multi-layered fulfillment of Scripture. You know, the simplest things we see is there's a near and then a far fulfillment of, of prophecy when, when things come out in, in uh, certain circumstances. Um, we see the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. And, you know, there are very often people that want to say, well, that's Moses and Elijah in uh, the book of Revelation. Well, I'll, I'll give you a concept here uh, again. Um, we have Elijah and Elisha, right? And Elisha is Elijah's servant and works with him in ministry. And then the day comes where Elijah is going to be caught up in the whirlwind. And Elisha is continuously hearing from the other prophets and scenarios that, that your master is going to be taken away from you today. And he's basically saying, I know that and leave me alone. And when it comes to the final moments, uh, uh, Elijah is trying to get rid of Elisha. And uh, Elisha says, not leaving your side. I'm going to be right here through this whole process. And uh, I'm paraphrasing again. Um, so Elijah asks Elijah, what is it that you want? And he says, I want a double portion of the spirit that is upon you. The chariot of fire separates Elijah and Elisha, and the whirlwind carries Elijah away, and his mantle, his piece of his garment, clothing, is left there, and Elisha picks it up and goes back to the Jordan strikes it, and the water parts. And so the very immediately you have the confirmation that the power of the Spirit that was upon Elijah is now upon Elisha. And it's interesting because the scholars have noted that there are literally twice as many miracles attributed to 
Elisha's ministry as there were Elijah's ministry. So my point is the spirit of Elijah, the supernatural Holy Spirit that was upon Elijah transferred to Elisha. And then you come to John the Baptist, which is very interesting because there are zero miracles attributed to John. Zero. But Jesus says he is Elijah, if you can accept it. He is Elijah. Uh, the similarities are that monastic lifestyle, that powerful confrontational message that he's constantly bringing, make straight the way for the king, is what he's saying. And we've talked in detail about how what John was saying was common to the people of the day in the Roman Empire, that when a dignitary was going to come, particularly to be in residence in their community, that the old goat path they used to use to get in and out of town needed to be rebuilt. You know, no Roman governor or leader was going to travel over that pothole-ridden trail. They would, Rome was famous for roads. They would build a road. They would tear down the mountainsides. They would grade everything. They perfected the horse-drawn grader. They would fill in. They would build massive aqueduct culverts underneath roadways in order for the water to flow through so it didn't erode. That's what John is saying. The king is on the way. Make the passage to his throne easy. Where is his throne? On your heart. And he needs free passage into our heart, soul, and mind to take up residence and rule from there. And there is an enemy of that rightful master. Our own soul has to relinquish that throne to him. John's message was very powerful. And it was so powerful that we watched that message transfer over to Jesus. John departs from the scene, right, into prison and then is beheaded. And, and we watched his message become Jesus' message. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. Make straight the way for the king. J John had the spirit of Elijah upon him. What, what spirit? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's the only one. You know, this concept that is especially amongst the modern, you know, I'll put the quote brackets around prophets that we see on television and stuff, that they have a mentality that that power is their own. You know, I, I had a person contact me years ago who told me that they were a very powerful minister of God. They, they told me that themselves. It's kind of weird. Um, <clears throat> that they had a very powerful ministry given to them by God. And that, that we should, in this church, accommodate them. And uh, they showed up here, and it was bizarre, because they literally had a badge That you're kind of like, is that like a Dick Tracy thing? Like, what are you doing? And they showed it to me, and it was it was their ordination. Their credentials on one side and a, a literal badge on the other side from the ministry. So I took note of that and looked it up later. And for $35, you can become a minister 
of that same thing and they'll send you your credentials in the mail and just uh, I was so tempted to order one I just you know I mean the questionnaire is like super simple and you know you could do with the Google search engine you can fill out you know all of the questions and just to have the badge you know what I'm saying that was some cool stuff man I just the power power is different right pa power comes from the Lord you know, we, we don't have this power in and of ourselves. We don't have power to wield. We I can't I can't just say and demand. Right? Even the prophets and even the apostles who the Lord worked so through so powerfully always demonstrate that humility and make the point that this is the power of God that's about to fall upon you in a negative or a positive way. Right? It's not of them. And then Paul even gives us the insight in First Corinthians chapter fourteen that the um, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, meaning that this whole idea that oh I couldn't help but prophesy, Holy Spirit came upon me and I just started speaking. Uh, no, that literally contradicts that concept. You, you can you can literally have the Holy Spirit speak to you and tell you what to say, and you, of your own spirit, can resist that and refuse and not say it. Right? If you're opening your mouth, it's because you are subjecting yourself to whatever influence is there. You're allowing that to come out of your mouth. And along with that, while we're on this rabbit trail, stay with me, he also says that when the prophet speaks in the congregation, let those who sit by judge what has been said literally meaning if somebody says something that is false that you should use your spiritual discernment and you should say right there in the moment ah that's incorrect does not line up with the word of god so this concept of john being elijah is a hundred percent accurate i suspect that maybe the holy spirit in the same way he was upon Elijah and then Elisha and then John will probably be upon one of the witnesses. Um, you know, those that insist, no, it's going to be literally Moses and Elijah. See, we saw them at the transfiguration. They're going to literally, okay, uh, you know. I, they showed up at the transfiguration. I mean, may, maybe they're going to show up there also. Yeah. I guarantee you I won't be surprised because I'm going to be watching from the presence of the Lord. So, you know, that'd be no big thrill. Everybody that wants to divide hairs over this, it gets a little silly. Verse 14. When he had come to the disciples, so he's back down off the mountain and he's in the presence of the greater group. He saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately, when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Now, that seems really polite, the way that it's written there. But it is the idea of, what the heck are you guys doing here? It, it, is, it is a very confrontational thing. It isn't, hey, good to see you, fellas. What's happening? It's, oh, Lord. Why are you guys here? You know, he knows the trouble that's within this. <clears throat> we shouldn't think of Jesus 
as always being patient with especially the religious hypocrites. He's very confrontational. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. <clears throat> Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Now, before we move into the miraculous healing, I want to point out that the scripture is very clear about epilepsy and seizures. There are those that are demonic. There are also those that are just caused by malady, sickness. The scripture declares that. In Luke, it says that he healed the demon-possessed and also the epileptics. And he, he makes people well. Uh, we see occasions such as this where the demonic host is capable of creating physical maladies, medical problems, we might even say. There were um, a couple of really terrible influences in Christianity regarding this concept. Uh, one of them was John Anders. He wrote a book um, years ago. Uh, I had the title, and I totally forgot it just then. Um, but uh, essentially what John was teaching was that um, it started out with sickness, but then it turned into every, every malady is demonic, is what he was teaching. So, you know, literally, I'm not making this up. He's, you know, in the end, you know, talking about the demon of head cold. The demon of lust, the demon of alcoholism, the demon of the demon of anger. Right? The, you know, all these things that come from your flesh. That don't have anything to do with the demonic whatsoever. Right? Uh, here's a concept. <clears throat> According to the scripture... You know, the devil is not omnipresent. He can be in one area at a one place at a time, the same as a human being. He has influences, right? And messengers, and, you know, we, we get the concept that there is a hierarchy of demonic influence. So there are minions that are under certain authorities, and he can order and demand, I guess, based upon what the scripture is saying. But he's not God. So your biggest problem, without question, is you. That's your problem. My suspicion is uh, I, I have only seen demonic influence in my environment a couple of times in my life. The rest of the time, it's just plain old jerk Will Cass. That's what I've got to contend with. Selfishness, you know, self-centeredness, laziness. You know, all kinds of human problems that plague me. You know, anger and all kinds of lack of control. And that's what I've got to subject myself to Christ over. It's uh, uh, Bondage Breakers was the name of the book by John Anderson. You know, it, it's, it's a total false doctrine. I, I mean, it's, it's heretical what, he's, what he has written and put out. It gets so weird that the 
groups of Christianity that I was around uh, as a young man being involved in churches and Christian schools, um, one well-meaning group of Christians that I was around, they had, um, um, years later, they had a board meeting of church members. And in the board meeting, they announced this to the church later. So they had a board meeting, and uh, it came up that a number of things had begun to go wrong around their church and around their ministry. And they, they you know, sound system problems and, you know, different things and uh, emotional and relationship problems and illness. And, and so in the discussion, because they have fully as a church embraced this false doctrine, the, they, they start the discussion of, like, when did this, when did this begin? Like, we need to trace this back, the root. And I'm not making this up. They, these are grown men, right, working together as a board of a church, a well-developed, well-established church in their community. They isolated down to an occasion where they received a bunch of donations at their church, items that were given to the church. And in amongst those items, there was a microwave that had been put into the church kitchen. And the discussion isolates onto you know certain occasions where I was I was in the kitchen one night and this spooky thing happened. And me and I was walking and I also was walking by that microwave one time and I had the strangest thoughts. And the the microwave is demon possessed was the end result of it. And they go down, unplug it right then, pray over it, and cast it out into the dumpster. You know, I mean, sometimes you just got to cast out the demon microwave. It just, you know, I mean, what else can you do? I think it's all that devil food cake that they were cooking. I don't know. I'm mocking, but, you know, at the same time, you guys... We want, to, we want to be very careful about the things that get introduced to our belief system and, and, you know, where they come from and do they line up with the word of God and why are we thinking this way? You know, here is someone who's suffering from real, true, demonic possession. And the signs of that are, are very obvious in these circumstances, you know, I asked them to cast it out, but they could not. He answered and said to him, answered him and said, Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Listen, you might, you might want to meditate on that verse, verse 19, and understand that we can we can be frustrating to God, right? When he has taught you and just, right behind that's going to be his love and his acceptance and his grace, right? But also give yourself a break sometimes, right? Because you'll deal with people spiritually and you're about to blow a gasket because they are so frustrating, Look, Jesus is even frustrated by these people. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying to you, so just run with it. 
<laughs> right? You know, if, if they really bug, kick them in the knee. You know, I'm not saying anything like that. Jesus immediately goes to it. But don't, don't beat yourself up too bad when somebody really is a spiritually frustrating knucklehead. Look, if you can push Jesus' buttons, right, God of grace, God of love, if you can push his buttons, we are so inferior. Like, it's not even, like, trying to compare us is, I mean, that's just like a dumb thing to say, so we're like Jesus. No, I'm just saying, like, when you get frustrated or your spouse gets frustrated or your child gets frustrated. I mean, if, if Jesus has buttons you can push, probably a tremendously sinful, inferior human being has buttons you can push. And uh, the grace of God is going to be necessary, right? And then the immediate reaction, right? Bring him to me. And there isn't a rejection here. He expresses how frustrating they are. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, you know, the idea of writhing and howling, foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said from childhood, look, again, you know, a whole bunch of these uh, you know, false teachers, um, I've talked about Mike Warnke in the past. Uh, Mike Warnke um, emerged in the early 80s in Christianity saying that he had been a satanic high priest in Los Angeles. He had been the overseer for a satanic coven that had 1,500 people, 1,500 witches, warlocks and witches in the coven. Turns out that was a total lie. He was never a satanic high priest. Uh, he... You know, he was enrolled in college studying business when he, at the time that he said he was in charge of this covenant. You know, he, he, he talks about, in his book, Satan Seller, he talks about, you know, in 1961, he had three foot long bleached white hair, three inch long blood red fingernails. You know, he was in charge, he was the, the high priest of the satanic covenant. And, you know, the, the people that did the expose on him found photographs of him in college that year. You know, he's kind of frumpy, uh, overweight, wearing a flannel shirt, white wall haircut, and horn-rimmed glasses. You know, he's a liar. He comes into Christianity in 1981 talking about how he's a satanic high priest, and he talks about all these things that Satan is capable of doing, and Christianity just eats it up. The greatest power of the devil is lies. And a whole bunch of doctrine gets developed in Christianity about Satan and what Satan's capable of doing based upon this knucklehead's influence over Christianity. You know, when he, how about this, you guys? When he comes into Christianity and starts to have this influence, he's living, he's married, but he's left that wife. He's living with another woman that he's not even married to, and they put him on the uh, Christian circuit door, and he's going around and speaking in churches while he's living in an adulterous relationship. You know, during that period of time, uh, he messes around with other women, and eventually at the peak of his uh, ministry, quote-unquote, uh, he's leaving that second woman and living with another woman. 
you know, another adulterous relationship when he goes to Jesus People USA and tries to make this big presentation on prophecy, and they, they check everybody's background. They don't let anybody come without vetting them. And uh, just basic details that he had given were wrong, and so that led them to do more. And in the end, they said, you can't come here. And then they ultimately published a book, uh, an expose of how the guy was false. I bring it up right here because, right, this question of how long has he been this way? There's a whole bunch of people that are on the demonic Christian circuit right now that are going around and talking about all these different things you have to do when you're dealing with demons. One of the things you have to know, you have to know the demon's name. You can't cast out a demon unless you know the demon's name. Because of the one occasion where Jesus gets the name from the demon legion, because we are many. And then Jesus cast him. So clearly, if you're going to cast out demons, you got to have the demon's name. You know, otherwise, he won't listen to you. You know, you could call him Steve. His name's actually Bob. And, you know, because you demanded that Steve leave, you know, he gets to laugh and stay inside because his name's actually Bob. And you you were trying to throw out Steve and I'm not going to have to leave, you know. The name on the eviction notice is incorrect, so I'm not leaving. How, how stupid. You know, the, the things that get developed here. You know, how long has this been happening? How long have you possessed this man? Be truthful. You know, just why converse with him? Right. You know, how many times did we read that Jesus just cast them out, just cast them out, just cast them out, just demanded that they leave, just go, just pointed and away they went. We get a few little descriptions, you know, I mean, you, you, you got certain ministries that function this way, right? Jesus is, you know, taking one guy outside of town and spitting in his eye and healing him. You know, on another occasion, he's spitting and making mud, Right. You know, and you, so you got the spit in the eye ministry, and then you got the bud in the eye ministry, and then you, you know, all these guys develop these different things. What's really interesting is that, especially with the occasion where Jesus spit and made mud, okay, uh, Jesus did that for two reasons. One, the, the Pharisees that were there that were witnessing to it had a rule that you couldn't spit on the ground on the Sabbath. Because you might spit, it would hit the dust, and it would furrow a row when you did that. So you were plowing on the Sabbath. So you're not allowed to spit on the Sabbath. It's ridiculous, right? How about this, you guys? <clears throat> By the time, I'll, I'll just follow that trail. By the time Jerusalem is completely built, the orders that come out of Leviticus and Deuteronomy about literally using the bathroom... You have to go outside the camp, use the bathroom. You got to take a digging tool with you. You got to dig a hole. You got to relieve yourself, and then you got to bury it because, you know, sanitary conditions. You don't want that inside the camp. You create dysentery very easily, having all of that bacteria in the camp. Get it outside the camp. So by the time Jerusalem is established, they're now referring to that as the camp of God, and they're saying that all the rules that apply to the camp when they were in the wilderness, now apply to Jerusalem. So there were literally those that were saying that when you need to relieve yourself, you've got to go outside the city. Now, that would create problems enough, okay? It goes even further. Because for many people living inside the city, on the Sabbath, that was greater than a Sabbath day's journey. 
So literally, the rabbis declared, you can't relieve yourself on the Sabbath. Thanks for nothing, you know what I'm saying? I mean, on, on Friday, I need to make it to the edge of town, and I'll be camped out there, you know, for the entire Sabbath, is what I'm telling you. Good grief. The foolishness, that, you know, that comes from, you know, you go, like, how long has this been happening to him? And, and you got people who are insistent that if, if you're going to cast out a demon, you need to have, know specifically how long has this been condition been going on and what is the name of that demon and what was the location and who is their cousin. It's just silly. Here, it's just, it's just something that Jesus is inquiring about to give us the insight of can you imagine as a child and as a parent dealing with this problem for a lengthy period of time, and then the relief that comes when Jesus delivers a soul such as this, right? Some of us have had things like that go on, right? Addiction that lasted for years. And we tried every angle on that that we could. And then Christ delivers us. And wow, you know, it's it's more than just the average, ordinary sort of deliverance. You've got the depth and the pain and the strain of time that you've now had the Lord touch and heal your life, you know, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Imagine having this kid. Every time you turn around. You can't turn your back on this child. This child has an internal compulsion that throws him at death, right? I've shared with you before, uh, my oldest daughter, Christian, was is fiery. Uh, you know, she, she's very fiery for the Lord today. She's a very devout woman, very steadfast. She, she preaches the gospel to anyone that will listen, you know, her neighbors, her friends, her friends' kids, her neighbors' kids. She just, she wants people in the kingdom. I just love my daughter Christian's heart and that zeal and that fire. That's there. When she was very little, it, it had some things that sort of felt like this. And I, the, the, for instance, I've described before where um, my wife Lori had a job and uh, we worked it out so that we had one car, so you got to arrange the schedules so that, you know, transportation. I take my wife to her job, and I drop her off, and Christian and I are going to spend a few hours together, and then we're going to go back and pick mom up. And so I left there, and I'm driving south on I-95 from the old town exit toward Bangor, and it's, you know, 65, little Subaru GL five-speed. I've gotten up to you know, speed, and I'm cranking right along. We're listening to stereo, and Christian has gone silent. This is the days when we, we put him in the front seat, right? She's in the booster seat in the front with me, and she's gone silent. And that's usually not good with her, you know? If things are quiet, like, you need to go look and find out what's going on. And I look over at her, and she's sitting in the seat next to me, and she's looking across the car with this fixed intense stare and i think like what is she looking at and so i try to draw the line between her eyes and whatever she's looking at you know keep my eyes on the road and figure out what's going on and i realize she's looking at the keys 
dangling from the ignition. And she's got a look in her eye now that feels unsafe. And just as it goes through my head that she would never reach over there and try to take those keys out of the ignition in one stealth move she goes whack and she's got the keys in her hand i'm doing 65 miles an hour my car's now off and the steering wheel is locked and i reached over and grabbed her hand and her whole little arm and ripped it off <clears throat> And jammed that back into the ignition. Just to, I can't start. I just unlock and I steer into the breakdown lane outside the passing lane where we are because the angle of the wheel has already left me across the line. Throwing us into the fire, throwing us into the water, throwing, you know, just. So I prayed incessantly for years and the Lord changed that behavior into something today that's extremely admirable you know she she follows the lord with that much intensity today you know she's many of you have experienced her standing right here with her two sisters and her mom leading worship together all of us and she helps lead worship in the church that she's at now you know how long has she been that way from birth <laughs> you know there were intense moments along the way here this poor father has dealt with circumstances where he's constantly having to guard you know probably sleeps with the child you know hand on the child all night you know worrisome fear right mute so there's also a silent tone of maybe deception and stealth involved. I mean, it's got to be a life of continuous worry, of constant strain. When the healing comes, you guys, imagine the relief, right? Probably there's some post-traumatic stress disorder that goes on where, you know, you just sort of wake up in the middle of the night freaking out, you know, because the memory of what it used to be like. Interesting to see what the Lord does in these moments. So here he's fall down you know, in the water, have to protect him from the fire and destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Boy, that's the summary for a lot of us, isn't it? Because we know the capabilities of the Lord. Maybe we've even seen the capabilities of the Lord. And we believe the capabilities of the Lord. But doubt plagues us. The beautiful thing is, it isn't your belief that holds the power. It's what you place your belief in. All you have to do is believe Jesus Christ's capabilities. Believe his strength. You may have the weakest amount of faith, but if you place it in the right thing, tremendous things happen, right? Forgive me for my repetition. Every year we lose people in the state of Maine because they put their full faith in the wrong thing, the ice on our lakes and rivers. They're convinced it's going to hold them, and they die because they place their trust in the wrong thing. 
right? You can have a very, this is what Jesus meant, when you have very faith as a mustard seed. You place it in the right thing, massive things happen. Why? Because of his capability, not the power of your belief. Because you're placing your faith in the right thing. Again, word of faith movement, false doctrine, heresy, teaching that you wield the power. If you just have enough faith, you'll be able to, no, 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 right? If you believe that you're going to have a Lamborghini tomorrow morning in your dooryard with all your heart, it will not be there. I have full faith that it will not be there. Because that's your and my lust. Wanting and desiring such things. And it does not align with God's will. Why? Because we'd both be in jail. We do not need such a car. God wants to prevent us from having such things. doesn't line up with him. If you trust him, he will give you what you need. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebu rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. How did the deaf and dumb spirit heal, hear him? Interesting concept, right? Deaf and dumb spirit that causes this inability? Don't know. But it's an interesting thought, right? Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. When he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, saying, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Um, this kind uh, has a couple different thoughts. This class is the best um, sort of understanding. It's, it's the idea of rank. This you know, ranking is not not going to give up its place easily. You know, you can go attack um, private level demons, maybe up to sergeant level demons, and they just leave. When you get up around lieutenant, I'm I'm just doing this as illustration. Uh, they're not gonna just obey. Okay, now apply that to your life, right? Because there are certain things. Right? You used to get bombed out of your mind on drugs and alcohol, and when you gave your life to Christ, you didn't do that. And it took you forever to finally quit cigarettes. And you were like astonished at how long and how difficult it was. And you thought that that was going to be the end all. And once you had done that, you realized the Lord was speaking to you about your anger. And then you had this long, discouraging period of time. There are certain things that only come out with, with prayer and fasting. Be they things within yourself and your own person or spiritual influences that affect you. I think the greatest point within all of this is, do you pray and fast? Because a lot of Christians don't. It is well worth your time. The biggest lesson I learned, and I'm not going to describe it, but the biggest lesson that I learned the first time I fasted was how powerful my flesh was. I mean, it freaked me out. It, it caused a panicked fear in my 24-hour fast without food. And I had an experience in that that absolutely stunned me to realize how powerful my flesh was. 
that that's where I first realized, oh, I don't have to worry about demons anywhere near as much as I have to worry about my own flesh and what it can do and what it does in my environment. I, I mean, there was a moment where I thought I was insane. I thought I was absolutely insane because of what I was experiencing. My flesh took over completely. There are things you need to pray and fast about. There are things you need to pray and fast about. And I would strongly encourage you to become a person who does it regularly. Right? Because if you can de derive any parallels from this to yourself, understand the necessity to see, right, the freedom. I think you can understand the need for the freedom in your life. Certain things that have, certain things that have been entrenched in your life since childhood that need to go. You know they don't belong, and you need freedom from them. Let Christ deliver you. Oh, that pastor couldn't do it years ago. That youth pastor couldn't do it, right? That mountaintop experience at the youth camp didn't do it. All of these different things didn't do it. What's, what's going to do it? When you get serious enough to pray and fast, well, I'm, you know, diabetic. I can't go without food. Great. Go without the Internet. Shut off your television, you know. Stop eating sugar. Go without something. Shut off something. Your flesh is very accustomed to have just cut bread out of your life for a week, you know, for, for, for a 24-hour period, you know. The television was one of the things I first started doing. And I quickly learned, like, I have to put duct tape over that and over the power button on the TV. Because here's the thing, you guys. I'm literally in the middle of ripping the, the duct tape off. And I'm thinking, like, who put this duct tape on it? What in the world? When I remember that, oh, right, I'm not going to watch television. Flesh is so powerful. It's led me back to the television. And I'm trying to fight my way on to. And i got to put barriers in place. Pray and fast. Let the Lord deliver you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and we'll pray.